welcome to Vox Vomitus, also known as Word Vomit. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our latest episode of Vox Vomitus. I am your host, Jennifer Ann Gordon, the author of the award-winning novel, Beautiful, Frightening, and Silent, and the gothic horror novels, From Daylight to Madness, and When the Sleeping Dead Still Talk. I am joined once again, as always, by my two Vox Vomitus vixens, author Alison Martine, the author of the Bourbon Books, and Trisha Ridinger-McKee, author of the Beyond series. Hello, ladies. Hello. We are here trying not to squeal and scream our heart's content because we are here with Mr. Matt Ruff, very famous author of Lovecraft Country, 88 Names, and so much more. Matt, welcome to our show. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. And yes, I am I am an overnight success at age 55 after three, three years in the business. So yeah, um, but I, I, I'm just happy to be able to pay for rent and health insurance. I don't need to be famous. That's fine. Um, Too late, you're famous. Can, yeah. Too late. So. <laughs> but thank you very much for so, having me. Um, Oh, uh, we're very excited. Obviously, I think you are, you're one of those, like you said, overnight successes in the same way that Bonnie Raitt was an overnight success when many years ago she won Best Newcomer after being in the business for 40 years. Um, yeah. You have uh, a, a wonderful resume of books. We're going to start with Lovecraft Country and then we're going to kind of just talk about your writing in general. So... Okay. A lot of people who are watching this probably, some of them have read your book, Lovecraft Country. Some have seen the HBO TV series. Uh, I have not seen the TV series. Oh. I am. Allison has done both. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Trisha has. Uh, so what was it like to be approached by HBO or how did this even happen? Did you have to pinch yourself a million times? This is a... Yeah, it's a sort of a convoluted story where it actually started out as an unsuccessful TV pitch back in 2007. I was um, behind me. You can see the cover for Bad Monkeys, which was my fourth novel, which before Lovecraft Country was my most commercially successful book. And while that was still in pre-publication, uh, some TV producers who liked it approached me and asked me if I had any ideas for original TV series. And they basically encouraged me to pitch them ideas and, you know, said, oh, you know, and we want is go crazy, give us as edgy as you can come up with, you know, go wild. And I, I understood, of course, that, that the, what Hollywood people consider edgy and what I probably thought as edgy were probably two very different things. But I, I basically just came up with ideas that I thought would make for good TV, whether or not they could actually be produced on television at that time. And to give you an idea, the first idea I pitched them in the Mirage was a, this is, remind, this is 2006, so the Iraq war is still going on. So the Mirage is a 9-11 novel set in an alternate universe where the United States and the Middle East have traded places. And the book, this, the, the story opens with Christian fundamentalists from the, the Americas flying planes into towers in downtown Baghdad. And it gets weirder from there. And, you know, so I pitched that to them and they're like, oh, okay, not that <laughs> I think the actual the actual <laughs> phrase that came up when they were talking to me is that this this needs a layer another layer of metaphor like you know maybe like Buffy the Vampire Slayer if you set it in a high school 
Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> I, I I realized, yeah. So I my second idea was Lovecraft Country, which the the pitch there was that it was going to be like the X Files if Mulder and Scully were black travel agents living in the Jim Crow era. So it's going to be instead of it's going to be a recurring cast of characters having weekly paranormal adventures, but. Instead of white FBI agents in the 90s, it's going to be this black family in 1954 Chicago who own a travel agency and publish a fictional version of the of the Green Book that I called the Safe Negro Travel Guide. And they would be having paranormal adventures every week, but also dealing with the, the more mundane terrors of life in the Jim Crow era. And I thought this, if you did it right, could be a really interesting, rich story. But um, obviously, I could see from their perspective, it's... First of all, again, this is this is now almost 15 years ago. Um, so it's a largely black cast. I did not do the things you could do to make this a bit more palatable. I didn't give my 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 main character a white best friend for the audience to relate to. <laughs> In fact, I think in my treatment, I specifically warned them not to do that. I said, you know, if you want to explore black white friendship in the second season, okay, but. For the start, let's focus on the people you know for whom racism really is a horror, and and let's. Because people who need that white best friend aren't going to like this anyway. So, but anyway, so it's that, and it's it's a period piece which is expensive, and it's a sci-fi show which has got special effects, so that's expensive, and it's about racism. And you know, from a executive's point of view, it's like, are people really going to want to tune in for that every week? And again, I thought the answer was yes if you told it right, but they did not agree with me. Yeah. So. So I pitched one more idea, which was 88 names, and they passed on that. And then I went back to my little writing room and started turning these ideas into novels. And uh, the idea was that, you know, I figured, particularly with Lovecraft Country, that if I did a good enough job with the book, it could serve as a proof of concept that a TV show really could work. And that ended up paying off, you know, much better than I, I could have hoped. Um, by the time the book came out in 2016, the culture had sort of moved a bit and, Immediately, I started getting a lot more interest and in, in response than I had for any of my other novels. So I, I, I got a, a fan email from Wyatt Cenac or somebody <laughs> claiming convincingly to be Wyatt Cenac. I got a Wyatt Cenac impersonator. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I got a, I got an email from one of Spike Lee's cinematographers saying, oh, you know, if you want help pitching this in Hollywood, let me know. And uh, and then my CAA agent called up and said, you know, this is odd, but. Jordan Peele wants to talk to you. And, you know, he's mostly known for comedy, but apparently he's planning to break into horror. And, that and he I said, did. yeah. And I, you know, I said, well, that's, this that's gives me great. Chills. I'm, I'm happy to talk to anybody. And, uh, and then, you know, I found out Misha Green was also going to be on this phone call and Misha I was familiar with from her TV show underground, which those of you who haven't seen it is basically the great escape set in a slave plantation. And, so I was really psyched for that because I, among other things, it meant that, you know, we'd have somebody who, who had already figured out the secret to how to pitch a, a story about racism that, you know, to TV executives and not have them run screaming from the room. Um, and uh, yeah, so we had this phone conversation where for the first time, it, it, like, like sometimes you talk to people from Hollywood and it's like they've read a different book than the one you've written. And in this case, we were all talking about the same story and we were all excited about it for the same reasons. And so I was, I was very excited and very happy. And uh, it was a few weeks later that the first trailer to get out appeared on YouTube. And when I saw that, I started laughing because I'm like, okay, now I know why Jordan Peele wants to do this. It's like, it all comes together. 
Yeah, we're on the same wavelength. And the other great thing, of course, it was clear even from the trailer that the, the movie I thought would be pretty successful and that that would probably grease the skids for pitching it to a network. Little little did I know. And uh, so basically, yeah, I, I got the golden ticket off of that, that Jordan's next project, he wanted to work on Lovecraft Country. And people looked at the returns from, from uh, Get Out and said, why, sure, Jordan Peele, we're happy to do that. And Whatever you want. <laughs> You know, typically you you when you pitch a series, they'll do the pilot episode first and then the network will decide whether to go ahead with it. In this case, HBO said, no, you know, we'll just order a full season straight up and you go ahead. And so, yeah, I, I've just sort of been bouncing off the wall since then. Um, and uh, the, the question a lot of people ask is how much input did I have in the actual series? And, and I got to say there I was, I think, smart enough to defer to Misha Green. Like I, I could have been a part of the process if I really wanted to. But um, basically, I gave her my my research and my, you know, some notes about why I had made certain decisions in the novel. And I said, you know, I'm here if you have any questions, but otherwise I trust you, you know, take what works and leave the rest. And I'm excited to see what you do with it. And because my, my version of the story was already told and I, I could tell she was going to have her own ideas about what she wanted to do. And I didn't want to be stepping on her toes for that. So I just kind of got out of the way and, and let her run. And, and I'm very happy with the results of that. So, um, and I did get to visit the film set a couple of times. I was there, uh, the two nights when they filmed the block party and the pilot episode. And then, um, my wife and I got to go down to Georgia in uh, last year. It seems like a million years ago now when they were filming. Um, it was. They were filming. It was a million Hippolyta. years ago. Now. Yeah, they were. They were simultaneously filming. I think Hippolyta's episode and the uh, the fourth episode, the one where they go into the pirate ship. So we got to see the the flooding of the pirate ship, which is they have this set and it was in this. You can uh, use spoilers. She hasn't. She, she's seen oh, oh, oh. Book, and that's not in the book. No, you're so, okay. I'm like, pirate it's, ship. It, it's about it's, the it's, book. The book changes, so some of the some of the stories track, but some of them they're they're differences, and some of them visual. It's their version of yeah. It's their version of breaking into the museum in uh, in. Uh, okay. uh, it's it's their version of Abdullah's book from the novel, and in this case, they go into the past into this pirate ship that is sort of magically trapped under the water and uh there's a scene where basically the windows break and water comes rushing in and destroys the set and that is actually a they they have a physical set with two 20,000 gallon water tanks and we were there the day that they basically destroyed the set and they had one take to get that you're telling like, me that was not special effects that was a practical effect oh no yeah they had a, they had a stage set built in oh uh, at the back of this oh. I think it was an old trucking uh, it was an old trucking depot that had been converted to a stage set and so they were able to sort of build this thing facing this open door in the back for the water to go out through and uh, yeah then they just had these gigantic water tanks and they set up all the cameras made sure they ran they had the actors go in one more time do every last take they needed and then they just dumped the water out and blew the set basically out of the back of the building. And, um, and then I also, and this was an amazing thing. We had to see the scene um, in the Hippolyta's episode where Hippolyta claims her name, where she's in bed with George mm -hmm. and claims her name as the explorer. And that was just, you know, I got weepy watching that because that was like, you know, Hippolyta is one of my favorite characters from the novel. So it was just really special to see Ingenue bring that to life. And um yeah, so we got to we got to see that and, and had a great time and uh, but boy those folks work hard. I that is a that is a different lifestyle. Um, even with union rules where they do get the mandated breaks and stuff, it's still they 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 just live on set five days a week and are busy busy busy. So um, it was something to see.
And I'm just going to jump in and say, for people who are listening and not seeing this, we get some comments down below. And uh, Laura Jacko has said, you had me at pirate ship. So <laughs> on the filters, you had me at pirate ship. There you go. She also said, uh, good for you for sticking to your guns and, you know, yes. keeping your creative vision alive. Um, I have two, two questions. One might be um, uh, the less fun of the two questions. Okay. Our culture has changed very much in the past few years, which has led to really incredible work like Get Out and Lovecraft Country being now very widely accepted. Did you or have you ever gotten slack for being a white man telling this story? Um, you do it with such amazing respect, but I'm just curious because there's haters everywhere. Not as much as I expected. I mean, when I, it, it's funny Good. when I would tell friends I was working on this, occasionally I would get this reaction like, you know, I don't know, I, I would compare it to the reaction if you told somebody you were going to take some, you know, essential but dangerous job, like, you know, running into burning buildings to save children, where people were like, you know, well, good for you. You're probably going to die buried under tons of flaming rubble, but I'm glad somebody's doing it. Um, somebody has to save the children and write about the black experience, I'm just Well, and, but, but that's the thing, is like, after you hear that a few dozen times, you start to wonder, am, am I crazy for not being too worried about this? But, but part of it is, like, my whole career, I, with the partial exception of my first novel, all of my protagonists are different from me. I mean, that's part of the, the whole point of fiction for me, is to, to, to imagine myself into the heads of people who are from different backgrounds, who may, you know, share interests with me or, or share temperament with me, but who have very different backgrounds and life challenges and cultures. And I, I would just be so bored if I were stuck just writing about variations of Matt Ruff. And uh, <laughs> I, I know this is a particularly, you know, yes, white author writing about the, the black experience as if there's, if there's, if there's only one, you know, that is a particularly fraught uh, topic, particularly right now, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, I the way I think of it now, it's basically you're talking about two different groups of people. I think black readers are just basically tired of having their hearts broken. I mean, there was this long period where the critical, you know, criticism was dominated by by white folks who basically would give a pass to racial stereotypes a lot of the time. And what was probably worse when when a, an author, you know, did when a white author did try to capture the the black experience, they would get praise just for trying, even if the result was the same old stereotypical nonsense writ large. And so not surprisingly, black readers, after getting burned a few times with that, just got really skeptical. And some of them blew way past skepticism. And there's this kind of fatalism where it's like, you, you people obviously cannot do this right. Please just stop trying and leave us in peace. And so... I think the adult way to respond to that is just to understand if you're white and you're going to write a book like Lovecraft Country, then then you're going to be playing to a tough crowd at least initially. But tough crowds can be won over as long as you don't, you know, expect to just get credit for showing up, and as long as you don't demand that people respect you. So you've got to earn it, and you've got to do your research, and you've got to, you know, take your time and, and get it right. But I'm fine with that. I, you know, that to me was just a an incentive to do a good book. And then there's a separate group of people who honestly, I, I think are, are mostly white who are, uh, you know, sort of style themselves progressive liberals who decided for ideological reasons that the, the best way for white authors to show respect to black culture is to, to treat black people as a kind of a taboo subject. And I, I understand how somebody could convince themselves that that makes sense, but I just find that a ridiculous idea. I think the way you show respect for people is by, 
treating them with respect and by you know bringing the same seriousness to the subject matter as you would to any other book. And if you do that, then you know you don't have to and, and just don't don't pick fights with people. Just tell a good story and let the work speak for itself and and you know know why you made the choices you made and I, I think you'll be fine. But um, so yeah, I've I've had for the most part, really good response to the, the novel, particularly for black readers who are the folks I was most concerned with, frankly. And if there are people who, for ideological reasons, have an issue with it, well, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, and I'll, I'll just hop in and say, I, I read 88 Names, and the main character for that has a biracial background, and you even yeah. explore what that means in 88 Names, because um, for those who haven't read it, it takes place primarily in a virtual reality setting. Which brings me back to a question I was going to ask earlier when you were talking about pitching these things and they didn't catch on. When you pitched 88 Names the first time, was this before or after Ready Player One came out? Oh, this was before. This was in, I mean, the book may already have been out. I don't remember when the book was published. And I I never, I think I I I bounced off the novel. I read like the first 30 pages and just didn't quite grab me. But I, I did... I was writing 88 Names when the movie came out, and I, I went to see the film just to make sure that Steven Spielberg hadn't stolen my thunder. And I was <laughs> I was glad to see that, yeah, he was playing a very different game with that movie very. than I was in 88 Names. So that's that was cool. But um, so, no, um, uh, what I it was the, the idea with this, the TV pitch for this was I wanted to I, I thought it'd be cool to tell a story where you would never see the characters set entirely in virtual reality, basically. So you would never see the characters as they actually appeared in real life, but only as they chose to present themselves. And, you know, where you, so every, the whole thing would be set in chat rooms or in various game worlds. And of course you could open a window, a video window and see the real world, but because video could be manipulated because social media could be manipulated, even then you'd never really know who you were dealing with. And the, the, the basic, plot for people who aren't familiar. Basically, the, 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 the main guy, John Chu, the protagonist, is a what's known as a Sherpa, basically a paid guide to online video gaming. So if you, you, know, if you want to play the futuristic version of World of Warcraft, you can basically pay him and he will cater an adventure for you so you don't have to spend hundreds of hours learning how to play or building up a character. And he gets a new client who calls, calls himself Mr. Jones and claims to be a wealthy, famous person with powerful enemies and is offering a ridiculous amount of money for a comprehensive tour of the world of VR gaming. And he comes to suspect that Mr. Jones is actually the North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. So it's this... <laughs> But he appears as, as a gray person. So the whole time, yeah. you don't know. It's not like he's appearing, trying to be someone else. He is he is neutral in every way possible. Yes, he's using a special kind of anonymizing avatar called, called a gray person. It's based on, it's based on uh, a, a, it's, it's an idea kind of borrowed from the lathe of heaven where uh, Ursula, Ursula Gwynn you know, posits this, this uh, r- racial free future where everyone is gray. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and this, this becomes a meme online where, yes, if you want to be totally anonymous, you can adopt this avatar that is, is gray and racially and gender nonspecific and speaks in a monotone. And there's even a switch where you can have lack of affect, so you will not pass any emotional cues along. Um, although even there, it's like your, your choice of language can sometimes give away information. So that's part of the fun of the novel. It's told from John Chu's perspective, and he's constantly trying to profile people, not, you know... He's a salesman, so he wants to know who he's dealing with and how to get what he wants from them and how to how to pitch to them. So this presents a special challenge, the the gray person, and like, okay, I don't know who you are, but let me see if I can figure out what you are and who you are anyway from what you say. So um yeah, so that's the that's the setup for that. 
And uh, yeah, no, so, I pitched that to them. That was actually of all the ideas I pitched, that was the one they showed the most interest in, but still didn't quite bite on it. So, well, um, I hope it become a movie or something, just because I I really enjoyed it and I thought it was a much better and more realistic take as far as how it was set up, and I would like to see that conveyed. And I know that not everybody was really happy with the movie version of Ready Player One and what they went there. And Ready Player One was really more about nostalgia in many yeah. ways and gatekeepers to fandoms. And that's not what 88 Names is about. So I feel like they've got very different messages. But I know that whenever you go, oh, VR, everybody just immediately goes to that. So I wasn't sure when you were pitching things there, if they were already like, we already did this one, Matt, we can't do this one too. No, I and I was I was crossing my fingers that Ready Player One would do well because, of course, yes. Even though it's very different, I, if it does terribly, then it would be like, oh, VR movies don't make money. And yeah, but fortunately, Steven Spielberg is basically undefeatable. I think. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that movie is very much a nostalgia trip, and I have to say, watching it was kind of frustrating in a way because he kept name checking a lot of the same concepts that, that fascinated me in, in, in 88 names, but then he would veer off and do something else. And I'd be like, wait a minute, no, no, do more with that. And, and I'm like, no, wait, I don't want him to do more with that. Then I can do more with that. But um, yeah. And you know, Hey, it's his movie, his, and all props to Steven Spielberg. Nostalgia trips are wonderful, but yeah, no, 88 names is a lot more about identity and uh, how people behave when they think they're pseudonymous or anonymous. And uh, so, yeah. Well, and the Easter eggs that you threw in there, some of them you actually spell out and they, they, they spoke to me. Like when you threw in the two by two hands of blue, I'm like, oh, yeah. tonight. but there was another one. And I'm like, okay, I have to ask. And you might laugh at me and go, no, this is not a, a, an Easter egg. I'm just imagining things. Is Janet Margot's name an Easter egg? Oh yeah. 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 Okay. Is that, is that a magician's reference? No, um, I'm, I was, that's you know, why uh, I was like, where am I the only one seeing that? Cause there's a character on Ludwigson's Magicians that's Janet in the book and Margot on the show. And I thought you had squished them together to make this character. No, that was that was me sort of hand-waving at Margot Roby, who has... Oh, uh, it's Margot Roby. She's, she's uh, Universal's option bad monkeys with Margot Roby attached to Star. And so, yeah, I, oh. I thought, yeah, well, what you know, John Chu is giving giving a tour to a, a famous actress. So who do I pick for that? I'm like... Well, let me name her Janet Margo. So it's sort of like, yeah. Um, oh, so well, what see, I'm loving is... Go ahead, Jen, sorry. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, what I love hearing is uh, the the different ways you talk about things like Lovecraft Country or 88 Names. And one of my questions, and uh, actually I think Allison and I probably had the same question because we were messaging last night. Uh, I read your bio and your bio said... And I agree with this, that you have never written a book in the same genre twice. And this drives your publishers crazy or something like that. Um, Not so much my publishers, but my publicists. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> publicists, yeah. So and our, our, our question, we both had it at the same time, is I love that you're writing in all these different genres. So I want to hear about that. But where are you in Barnes and Noble? What shelf do they put you on? Do you just need an end cap, a Matt Ruff end cap? Because you have romance, kind of psychological romance with um, Set This House in Order. You have sci-fi. You have things that are delving into horror. I tend to be, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a while since I've been in a Barnes and Noble, but I tend to be scattered in at least two different sections. Um, okay. um, 
depending, I mean, a lot of the books get just filmed in general fiction. Uh, typically, set this house in order. Uh, it may have more to do with cover art, though, you know, than... than, mm. than um, That's another rabbit hole. I'm not, not going there. Yeah, set this house in order, Mirage, and uh, I think Fool on the Hill, actually, all tend to end up in general fiction. And, and Bad Monkeys, sometimes general fiction, sometimes thrillers. And then, yes, you get, uh, and then uh, Sirius Electric, when they have it, which they usually don't, will be in science fiction. And I, I presume 88 Names would be in science fiction as well. And I, I don't know, I, I, it's hard to say with Lovecraft Country where that would be now. It could be horror, it could be... Could be sci-fi fantasy. It really depends, but I tend to get scattered in various different. The end cap is the best option right now, honestly. And yeah, you know, made for TV. Like you've seen it on the big screen. Just put that there, and then just put all your other books around. It could be its own display, just like what's behind you right now. That'll work. But I, you know, and I've I've had I've had bookstores too where the the yeah, if you've got booksellers in different parts of the like at the University Bookstore at at uh, at. University of Washington, I think there's sometimes a fight between the, the sort of sci-fi fantasy section guy and the lithic guy over who gets to keep what, which is fun <laughs> that they fight over it. But it's also annoying because it does make it harder for people to just find, yeah, if they want all the books to, to find them in one place. But so, and yeah, this, this started actually, I mean, I, I didn't do this deliberately. It just, it, I'm, I'm self-taught. I started writing when I was five. By the time I was old enough to have other people tell me how you're supposed to do things, I'd already sort of come up with my own ideas. And so it just never occurred to me that you had to stick to one genre, write the same thing. And I'm, I'm fortunate I didn't get stuck there. And part of it, I owe my, my first publisher, Morgan Entrican, um, the, the initial cover for Fool in the Hill, it's a, it's a comic fantasy set on a college campus. And the original cover for like, the initial cover art for that looked like a very traditional fantasy novel with this dragon. Mm. And I thought it looked really cool. But Morgan was like, no, 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 no. You know, it's like fantasy. <laughs> fantasy readers will like you, but they will find you wherever you are. What we want is we also want to get the people who think they don't like fantasy, but who will like this if we can trick them into picking it up. So. He commissioned a more ambiguous cover that, you know, could be fantasy, could be litfic, and basically saved me from what Charles DeLint once called the, the curse of the unicorn, where if you know you have the unicorn on your on your cover, <laughs> then you're gonna be writing books with unicorns on the cover for the rest of your natural life. And uh, I dodged that bullet and then you know my second novel my second novel was a science fiction satire of Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. So that got, and that got a very weird cover as well. And then Set This House in Order is a, a fairly mainstream for what it is. I mean, it's, it's a story about a friendship between two people with multiple personality disorder. But for all that, it's, it's basically a, a character study and, and a, it sounds like a wacky fantasy idea, but it's, it's not, it's handled pretty straightforwardly. Um, and at that, by that point, it was just sort of, it sort of backed into this reputation of, yes, never stepping in the same genre twice. And I, but it's, it's mostly just been, I've, I, I would be bored writing the same thing all the time. And I've been fortunate enough to have um, uh, publishers who are, you know, willing to let me go where I want to go. And as I say, my publicists have a problem with this, at least earlier in my career, because it's, you know, how do you, how do you pitch this? How do you advertise when your next book? It's like, you know, bad, bad monkeys came out and there were, there were at least a couple of reviews that were unhappy that it wasn't set this house in order too. And they didn't know why I would, you know, why is he writing this weird Philip K. Dick like novel after writing this really cool, you know, character study. And I'm like, well, because it's a different book. So, 
Um, but now sure that you're getting, you're getting bad reviews for something the book never promised to be because they had yeah. their own expectations going in that you're like, but that's, that's your problem. Not, not mine and not the book's problem. Yeah. That's the, that's the, you know, there are the two kinds of bad reviews and the, the bad review you don't want is the one that understands what you were trying to do and explains how you screwed it up. And then there's the, <laughs> <laughs> yes. then yep. there's the much more common bad review, which is you wrote a book that you wanted to write instead of the one I wanted to read. And I'm going to penalize <laughs> yes. you for not doing what I yes. wanted. And yep. I, I get those a lot, but I, you know, I don't mind them. Um, yeah. It, no. it, and now I guess, you know, at this point with, with Lovecraft country doing what it has done, I, I will probably be free to do what I want. And, and I'm, I'm hopefully past that, but um, yeah, I, 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 this is sort of, yeah, the, my genre basically has become Matt Ruff novels, which are all different, which is fine. Well, and you're establishing that people will look for your book and will go find it wherever they're shelving it, and you don't have to worry about, oh, no, they aren't going to cross that barrier because it's sci-fi, and sci-fi is for nerds. No one wants the one with the dragon on the cover. <laughs> I don't see any dragons. I think you're okay. Although, you know, I mean, even that even that thing, the the fear of nerds thing, I think that's that's largely a relic of the past now, too. I mean, Marvel has conquered the world. And it's nobody, our time. Nobody, Nobody, I mean, there are still some some people, you know, in their 40s and 50s who are kind of butthurt from the way they were treated when they were kids and they haven't got past it. But I, I just don't think the, I just don't think the critical apparatus, yeah, I know, I know, I know. You just described that, all of us, Matt. <laughs> Sorry, I should have reached for a better phrase than butthurt, but it's just, yeah, that's no, what comes fit. to mind. It's it. Um, 40s butthurt over what happened to us when we were 12. This is, I think, the basis of all of our books in some way, shape, or form. <laughs> so, Trisha, we have not heard too much from you tonight. Do you have any questions for Matt? Sure. Um, because we are Vox Vominous, I, um, I do want to know, when you're writing, um, how far into it do you realize... Um, but your writing is a mistake. Um, it's bad writing when you have to go over because it happens to all of us. You know, you're writing something. You're like, this is not working. The scene is not working, whether it's a scene or it's a chapter. Um, how, how soon into the, you know, progress are you? Um, at this point, I, I, by the time I start writing, I've already figured that much out. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, when I, when I start writing the book, I, I mean, I, I think about books for years before I start working on them. This is why I write oh, you're so slowly. A you, you, you plan out, you plan ahead. Um, I mean, yeah, basically by the time I, I start writing, I, I basically I've got what? the first third or so of the book pretty well nailed down in my head and I know how it's going to end very often. I'll have the last line very much in mind and then. You know, there's this sort of foggier region in between with little peaks poking up out of the fog where, you know, the, this scene is going to happen at some point and this scene is going to happen and the climax is going to be kind of like this. Right. And I'll start writing the beginning and, you know, that foggy area will slowly, slowly evaporate as I go forward. But the, the point is, because I've thought it all through by then, I, I generally know... I've got a pretty good idea that it's going to work. I try to maintain a little bit of doubt because it's it's good to be nervous that it's all going to fall apart at some point just because it keeps you from getting lazy. But, right. um, you know, and, but if I'm going to have a crisis of confidence, it's usually going to be in those, those first 50 pages. And if I get through that, then 
Um, you know, there'll, there'll be stuff that's bugging me and stuff that doesn't work, but it, I, I'll know that I'll, uh, if I just give it enough time, I will figure it out. And, uh, so it's just a question of keeping at it and, uh, and working towards that glorious day when the front end meets up with the back end and it's not done yet, but then I just, then I know for sure everything that's going to happen that I haven't written yet. And that, yes, this, this actually does work the way I want it to. Um, so I, I don't abandon novels in the middle anymore. I think the last time I, I gave up on a book was probably, um, it was after Fool on the Hill. I, I, I had this idea for a book called Rosadante Understands. It was going to be like a modern Don Quixote about this woman who's, uh, her husband dies and she loses her mind and, and basically becomes Don Quixote. And it was going to, it was her, the dog, Rosinante is this dog. So it's this, this dog that she, she is with. And I forget exactly now much of the plot, except that it was going to end I up resulting in a nuclear power plant. And so anyway, that got, a, I got about five chapters into that when I realized I really didn't I'm know hooked. where the hell I was going. And yeah. Um, if you have that on your website. So when oh, we started you couldn't send that to me. Why, why didn't we finish this? And I mean, maybe that's also because I, I we, we saw not that long ago, uh, the man who killed Don Quixote. So the idea of someone who loses their mind and thinks they're Don Quixote, I'm like, I liked that. We can do that again. I know. Yeah, no, um, that, that's just, I think I got, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, once you're uh, finished uh, with this, we have a couple questions from some viewers that I just wanted to get to before. Oh, yeah. Before we just talk about Don Quixote for the rest of the night, because I will. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, we did have a question earlier um, from Christian, who runs the Superheroes Unleashed podcast and Facebook group. He's an amazing uh, benefactor. Yes. So his question was regarding Lovecraft Country. Um, he said, besides Lovecraft Country, Get Out and Antebellum, do you see this trend permeating into other genres, uh, the 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 hard-hitting race question, I think, is the... Because if you haven't seen Antebellum, you should. Uh, uh, no, I haven't yet. Although I, I gather it's uh, somewhat like Kindred. I, I mean, without spoiling too much, but I've, I've heard I haven't seen that yet. I, okay, I don't know Kindred, but I would suggest, and it's impossible to talk about Antebellum really without spoiling, spoiling anything okay. besides saying it. It really uh, no, hard hits the race question. I, I haven't seen it yet. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I can think of other examples within horror, obviously, that, you know, Victor Laval's Ballad of Black Tom, which by an amazing coincidence came out the exact same day as Lovecraft Country. And we were both very glad that it did because there was no question of one of the other of us being inspired by the other. We just came up with very similar ideas at the same time. And although, again, those we're playing different games. I mean, Victor is, Victor's book is an attempt to take direct issue with Lovecraft. He takes one of Lovecraft's really most racist and, and least interesting stories, the horror at Red Hook, and retells it. He does a a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern or dead version of it where it's like told from the point of view of a, a black character who in you know would just be one of the faceless monsters in Lovecraft's version of the story. Uh, and you know, Ruth Anna Emrys uh, has a Winter Tide series, which is basically the shadow over Innsmouth told from the point of view of the people of Innsmouth. And uh, you know that Lovecraft's version of that story ends with these these sort of people being sent to a concentration camp. That's the happy ending that they 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 drop bombs on the the reef off the shore of the ocean and they take the people of the town and put them in a concentration camp where they all die. And 
So she tells him she's Jewish. And so she's telling the, the version of this, like these, yes, these guys get sent to the same internment camps that the Japanese were later sent to. And so I, I, I'm seeing there will, there will certainly be more of this in horror. I don't know if I've seen a lot of examples outside of that, but I, I would not be surprised. I mean, um, I think part of what, I mean, part of the resistance to this obviously has just been that, you know, I think particularly in, in film and TV, which are so expensive to do is that people, people with multi-million dollar budgets tend to be fairly conservative about what they want to green light. And now there are, there's more proof of concept that these kinds of stories can, can find an audience and, and make money. Um, so I think we will see more and we'll probably see them spilling over into other genres, but I haven't, I, you know, I'm, of course, as soon as I get off, I'm going to think of three or four examples. That and I, I was going to hop on, I was going to hop on and say Watchmen because we watched, oh, yeah, yes. right. and we were, we were joking that we wondered if HBO saved money by having the same Tulsa riot film for both episodes, because we're like, Hey, same, same riots, same costuming, but very different setups for very different stories. But racism is, I, very I could not that story as well. I, I doubt that they reused it, but that would have been that would have probably been a smart <laughs> thing if they did. Historically, we've learned so much from watching HBO recently, but, but <laughs> so I would say Watchmen, which is more science fiction and very comic booky, and starting with the Watchmen from what we've seen in the movie, but then it's a different story and move forward in time and definitely tackling the racism issues there. So it is being done in other in other genres, and I hope it just means. The success of Lovecraft Country, the success of Watchmen, it will continue to be something that is spearheaded by people like Jordan Peele and just things going forward and people going, yeah, this is something that we it's worth investing in because there's there are viewers out there and it's being done well. Yeah, I mean, I'm, well, I'm sure I will we'll say. See. Oh. Yeah. oh, sorry, okay. I was just going to say I saw a Twitter poll. Um, not too long ago, just a random Twitter poll that said, when was the first time you heard of the Tulsa riots and one of the answers was Watchmen and one of the answers was Lovecraft Country one of the answers was in school or from my family and I will say Watchmen did beat you but you were yeah. second <laughs> not school not family not church it was Watchmen Lovecraft Country mm -hmm. that were very high up there and then so well, at this point, I, I should it's, name check uh, James W. Lowen's Sundown Towns, which is where I learned about it. This is a a, a book a book about the uh, you know basically it's the secret history of whites only communities in America, and he mm -hmm. talks about it's where I first learned about the Green Book. It's where I first learned about uh, the Tulsa massacre. The other thing, though, and this is this is the the thing that that now the Tulsa massacre is is become the sort of sole icon. And, and I think the one, well, one thing people have to be aware of, it's, it's not the only time that this happened. It's just one of the few times that, and, and of course, even though it was, the memory of it was largely suppressed for a century, um, it's still better remembered than many other such incidents, simply because there were survivors who lived to tell the tale and pass down a historical record. And what Lowen talks about in his book, that's a lot creepier than I think, I hope somebody does a story about is that, there was really an, a whole era starting in the 1890s and starting with Chinese immigrants that were uh, in the, particularly in the North and the Western U.S., there was a wave of ethnic cleansing that spread through large portions of the country where probably hundreds, maybe even thousands of towns drove out their non-white populations. Again, first Chinese, but eventually this became focused on African-Americans. Uh, 
in some cases, you know, it might be 30 families. And, and just one day, this idea got to the, the white folks in town that, oh, you know, we can't have them living here anymore. And they, it, it might be triggered by a specific incident, or it just might be that it became fashionable to do this, that they, and they might, you know, sometimes they would give a warning to the people in town, you, you need to pack up and leave, or you will be sorry. Um, sometimes they didn't wait, and there was just violence right away. And you know, and if it's a small group like that, very often nobody's left to tell the story. And then the, the white folks in town would go about suppressing the memory of it. Historical amnesia would develop. And the kids who grew up in the wake of that, it was just seemed natural that, you know, nobody who wasn't white ever chose to live there. It just didn't occur to you that there might be another reason. And the reason this is important is that this is why even today, if you drive across country, there are just large regions of the United States, including some whole states, where you just don't expect to see anybody who isn't white. And that's not an accident. There were reasons for that that have been forgotten. And Tulsa is just a tip of the iceberg of that. And so this is the thing. I, I hope people don't get the idea that Tulsa was this unique incident. It wasn't. It's just, it's it's only unique in that it's the one we know about right now. And even this is one that we're only just remembering, but there will be hopefully more about this, but just a lot of the historical record is just gone because we just don't know what happened and there was nobody left to tell the story. Um, I, I also have read Sundown Towns, and when I, again, after I finished Lovecraft Country and I was reading your bio and your acknowledgments, and when you, you mentioned that book, I it just like, it, it gave me chills all over because it is the hardest book that I think everybody in the United States and the world should read. And it made me be like somebody, like, you know, a white woman from the North realize that, no, we were always on the good side. And, well, yeah, that was the other thing about the book that, that you know, brought home to me. And I, I had, it wasn't the first time I'd heard this, but it, it still is fascinates me that, that, I mean, we do think a lot of people still tend to think of racism as a primarily Southern institution. And what Lowen makes very clear is that, no, it was a, a nationwide issue. It was just expressed very differently. In the South, it's about continuing the exploitation of black labor in the in the wake of the Civil War, whereas in the North and in the West, you, you got this, yeah, it's like we, we don't want black people here at all, so we're going to drive them out and force them into very small areas in the inner cities. And, and which is why, again, it's like one of these questions that didn't occur to you to ask. It's like the slaves coming up from the South to the North, these were people who had, a lot of them had been slaves on farms. And it's like, well, why would people with agricultural skills go and live in the city? And the answer is because if they tried to live in the country, they got they got attacked. So the the cities were really the only place that they could go in a, in a lot of cases. So yeah, uh, so Lowen does a very good job of sort of just capturing how like the whole idea of a sundown town that is a northern and a western phenomenon. It's really not something you see down south very often because again, if you're going to exploit black labor, you need to have black folks around. You don't need to make them leave at night as long as they know their place. But in the North, it's like, nope, don't want them here at all. So we're just going to warn them off. And, and you know, so yeah, it's, it's, and that is why I set the, the, the action of the novel in the North, because I, I wanted that. It also just fit the Lovecraftian theme, that sense of paranoia of, Unlike the South, where you have extensive signage telling you where and where you aren't welcome, in the North, you have the same level of segregation and hostility, but fewer warning signs. And so you constantly have to be on your toes. It's like, have I wandered into a place where I'm not going to be safe at night? And, you know, so uh, that just seemed to fit the story a lot better. And again, it was something that I hadn't heard talked about. And it fascinates me that even now there are reviews of Lovecraft Country that talk about it as being set in the South, which it 
it was filmed in parts of the South, but it, it was not, it's not set there no. in Chicago and New England, but it doesn't matter. It's it, the book says that very clearly and people still like, Oh yes. It's like, well, Tick's yeah. coming out of Florida, but we don't really stay in Florida. In fact, like first couple minutes, he's leaving. So they yeah, got it's, in the novel, it's like the first four pages maybe are set in the South and then we don't go back yeah. there. And then in the, yeah. in the TV show, it's like, yes, where it's maybe Bye. three minutes. Yeah. Exactly. And that's when it, yeah. Well, it's probably just people who are, again, the concept is, well, we have to assume this is just Southerners and let's just blame one segment of society rather than understanding that it was as endemic as it was. And I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not casting stones at anybody because I, I was the same way. I mean, the, the, one of the earliest, probably the, the er moment for Lovecraft Country was when I was back at Cornell and I had a, I had a friend named Joe Scandalbury who was the RHD at Ujima, which was the the dormitory that was affiliated with the Africana Studies program. And so I used to, you know, drop by and, and hang out with him and chat. And the other thing I did at Cornell, I like to go on these long hikes. And Cornell is this little cosmopolitan island in the middle of rural farmland. So you walk five miles in a direction in those days and you'd be out in the, in the middle of nowhere. And so I would go get lost and, you know, wander 10 miles and wander back to campus. And one day I was mentioning that I had done this, you know, and I talked to Joe about this and saying, oh, you should go walking out there, Joe. And he just laughed at me and said, are you, are you nuts? I'm a black man. I can't go walking around the farms up here. I want to live to see graduation. And I was like, well, what are you talking about? We're in upstate New York. And he's like, yes, I know we're in upstate New York. I cannot, I cannot go walking around the farms up here. So that that incident in Simmonsville in Lovecraft Country is uh, is sort of my nod to that moment where you know it's like yeah I, I as I, growing up in New York City I was just like I knew racism existed in the North but somehow I just didn't it's like well yes but we're not in the South South so it's not a you know it's yeah. not going to be a problem so that was sort of that was a moment that really stuck with me that just realizing like, Oh yeah, that's right. You know, if, if I think about it, you know, I, I basically don't see anybody in these walks, but the people I do see are white and they're the kind of folks who drive pickup trucks and wear baseball caps and have gun racks in the back of the truck and big dogs. And I don't get hassled, but if I'd look like Joe, that would have been a different deal. So that was really kind of eye opening. So I, again, it's like, I, I, I don't fault people for missing this, but it just still strikes me that, this is something that even today a lot of folks just haven't realized. So, yeah, um, Matt, we could keep talking forever. Honestly, um, I hate to say this, but we are out of time, and I didn't even get to say thank you for putting New Hampshire in your book, even though it was not super favorable. <laughs> but as somebody from New Hampshire, I was like, "Yes, New Hampshire is <laughs> mentioned," and I'm like, "Oh, okay, yeah, no, that's fair. It's a completely fair." <laughs> So, um, Matt, thank you. Thank you, Allison. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, we, we adore you, and I hope we were the right amount of dorky to Absolutely. not scare you off. Okay, yeah. The perfect <laughs> yeah. amount of dorky. He didn't say those words. I put them in his mouth. He said we were the perfect <laughs> amount of dorky. Absolutely perfect. <laughs> yes, absolutely perfect. Perfectly splendid. Now say that. Say perfectly splendid. Splendid. Perfectly splendid. <laughs> Sorry, that. We just did a blind man or a thing. Okay. Um, <laughs> everyone who's watching this right now, uh, we have a special bonus episode of Vox Vomitus on Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time with playwright Bruce Sonheim. 
I'm saying his last name wrong. I know I am. Uh, but he's going to be here with some of the actors from his latest show. Next Wednesday at our normal same bat time, same bat channel, we will have Andrew Niederman, ghostwriter for VC Andrews for the last 30 years. Uh, so please mark your calendars. We'll be spamming all of you on Facebook. Uh, yes. We've got big things going. If you haven't read Lovecraft Country or any of Matt's work, I suggest you start right now. Uh, the moment I finished Lovecraft I, Country, I, I second I that. Bought, uh, <laughs> I, I, I bought set this. It set this house in order, right? Set this house in order. Yes. I know I'm saying it wrong. I bought that the second I was done Lovecraft Country because I too have written something about multiple personalities and it being maybe a love story, but also not. Uh, so I'm glad I'm finished with that book and I can read yours and not feel like it impacted me uh, where I just stole all your ideas. <laughs> I know that so feeling. Thank now. you, everybody. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I really want to read this book. I cannot read it right now. I hope I can steal um, my thunder. I do oh, want to no. thank. <laughs> I know. Oh, it's fine. Uh, thank you, for being our producer, for posting our comments, for doing uh, everything technical that we don't know how to do. Thank you to Pam Stack, our executive producer at the Global Authors on the Air Network. This has been a copywritten podcast by the Global Authors on the Air Network. Oh, Laura says, thanks for a great show. Bye, Laura. Great interview. Thanks, Christian. Bye-bye. So, <laughs> bye. Thank you, everyone.